Welcome to the Dairy Farmer's Digest, a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming. Each episode, we will talk to industry leaders who share their insights and experiences into the dairy business. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Dairy Farmer's Digest. Uh, I'm excited to have Mark Gerber from Zimpro on today. Uh, so Mark is, uh, what's your official title, Mark? You're a technical specialist? Uh, dairy specialist with, with Zimpro Corporation. Yeah, and you're based in Michigan. Correct. I'm in central Michigan. Yes. Oh, nice. So I don't know if the listeners know this, but whenever somebody's from Michigan, they kind of just hold their hand up and they say, this is where I'm from on their hand. So <laughs> yeah. So Mark, uh, I guess your expertise and your kind of lane that you uh, work with dairy farmers would be in lameness prevention, hoof trimming and that kind of thing. Correct. Yeah. So why don't you explain your, uh, maybe talk a little bit about your background and uh, how you got into this. Okay. Well, I grew up on a dairy farm in central Michigan and, uh, you know, that was a long time ago. I, I came out of Michigan state in 1984 and then went on and got a master's at uh, Grand Valley state university. And, uh, since I worked for a feed company in the Midwest, Iowa, primarily Wisconsin, for about 13 years. Then I worked for up in Wisconsin. I was a manager for about three and a half years with Diamond B okay. as a dairy production specialist. And then I've been uh, pretty much over the last 21 years, either in Iowa, Illinois, or Michigan, where I'm at now. And I've been a dairy specialist. What's the biggest thing that you've seen kind of in the industry change in the last 30 plus years? <laughs> well, when I got out of school in the mid eighties, I mean, it was uh, ear corn, tie stalls, stanchions. TMRs were just coming around back then. There was still a lot of component fed herds. So uh, yeah, I've seen a lot of uh, changes in management, uh, a lot of feed ingredients we didn't have available back then. So, you know, just overall um, dairy industry has changed a lot. Expectations, yeah, I mean, right? Production, efficiencies. Yeah, I know. And, and that side of the border too, I, I kind of think that, you know, we're maybe not, 30 years behind here on production techniques, but you know, there seems just to be a lot bigger, more kind of larger centralized, I guess they call them CAFOs in the U S but uh, a lot more of those units in, in kind of your travels, I would suspect. Yeah, and like I say, you go back Wisconsin where I started in the, uh, in the eighties. I mean, there weren't very many herds over hundred cows back then. So uh, it's, no, it's evolved uh, over the years. And, and that's just the system that's in place in the States. So yeah, I know I was just reading an article at the D I think it was the DFA was putting in uh oh what what did they call it? It it wasn't quota, but it was uh you had to buy the rights off another producer to to ship that milk into the DFA. So and for those that don't know, that's the Dairy Farmers of America. Yeah, and that's pretty much regionally in the States right now. It's not everywhere, but regionally it's it's taken some the northeast, the the west, the Pacific Northwest. We've got some areas where that's in practice right now it's interesting always listening to what's going on on the other uh the other side of the border so but your main expertise so did you you were a hoof trimmer too as well was not we oh you it, were not okay no we dairy farmers i mean we did it years years ago ourselves incorrectly 
and worked with the local veterinarian, but didn't do it right. I learned uh, a little over 21 years ago when I went to the University of Florida, probably the first week, and they sent me down to Gainesville, Florida with Jane Shear, Sorrel Van Amstel. Then yep. since uh, years later, I went up to Baraboo, Wisconsin, got certified with Carl Berge. Uh, okay. Maryland. So yeah, we've had no, no shortage of training on that, but the answer is uh, I got it since I've been with Zimpro. So. Yeah. And I know like I, it's one of my kind of pillars that I talk to producers about is, is hoof health and these girls just have to, they got to walk to do everything that they need to do. They got to walk to the feed bunk. They got to walk to the parlor. They got to walk to go lay down. And I think it's just one of those incredibly important things on dairies that, uh, that, sometimes doesn't get enough attention in my opinion. And it's something that we really have to kind of zero in on. But the, the other thing too, is there's so much information to learn about hoof health and, and productive animal life that uh, it's a little bit of a daunting task. I know that uh, there's, yeah, there's so many, so much information at your fingertip that you can just, uh, there is so many there. resources. It all goes back, Keith, to cow comfort, Gordy Jones, right? Yeah. We can do this in a non-robot dairy, but we can assess line times. You can't, or we in a non-robot, but in a robot dairy, that's not possible. But theoretically, if a cow's lying down 12 hours a day, you're, you're going to minimize lameness issues. We've got barns in Ontario. We've got barns in the States. Don't even get nine hours a day. Yeah. Um, it's overcrowding. Maybe that the stalls aren't fit to the cow correctly. But those, you know, extra pressure standing points, those are all things that can lead to lameness issues. Well, one thing that I've really noticed in my career, so I would have started in 2006, is just the difference in barn designs. Like if you look at a lot of the barn designs out of the, I would say the mid to late 90s, early 2000s, they were all narrow. They, some were slats, a lot of mattresses, things like that. And it just seems like the biggest thing that I've seen in barn design kind of going forward or in the recent past here is just a lot more space, you know, wider feed alleys, wider crossovers, a little, a lot more areas where cows can just kind of be cows without, you know, having to deal with that theoretical boss cow in the herd. Right. So. Correct. You know, I was on a herd a couple of weeks ago, um, a crossfit out in Idaho, large herd. And we think of white line lesions, mm -hmm. or abscess, you know, lesion that produces pus. Usually that's a flooring issue, right? And the other thing a dairyman can look at is how many 90 degree turns is there from the pin to the parlor and back mm -hmm. milking system. And usually we like to say six or less. And this particular dairy, 16. Holy. So they have a lot. Yeah. So, and this is a crossman, so it's not that old, but it was, I would say, we wish we'd had some input before they build it, but that's a lot of turns. You're pulling the wall away from the sole. So... Yeah. Yeah, didn't they call, or maybe they still call white line the parallel parlor disease? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's build off that a little bit. So, like you mentioned, white line there. So, can you maybe explain to some of the listeners uh, what the white line is? White line is the poorly, uh, can't really show, but it's you take your two digits it'll run the, around the outside of the toe, which is called the abaxial wall, mm -hmm. right? And then yep. it'll run around the upper third inside between the toes on each toe. So it'll come up about a third. So that's the strength. The white line is the strength. And when we get called out to look and do audits with trimmers, those are some of the things we really get uh, 
uh, anxious about is when they take a grinder, hand knife, or grinder especially, in between the toes or even on the outside walls because they're yeah. weakening the wall. They're we it's like cutting studs out of a wall. Pack that foot in, right? And so that's, that's where we want uh, the support. We don't want to reduce the support out of the foot. So 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 the white line would be like the rebar or the lignin in a corn plant or whatever, you know, helps keep that structure intact anything and that, strong. It's a soft line that connects the wall and the sole. So anything that could penetrate it, coarse sand, wire, something they can pick up that can get in there and mm -hmm. penetrate it. And then usually they'll run and they'll run the outside and they'll either blow out the side or they'll blow out the heel. They go to the okay. weakest point of resistance on white line lesions. But you know, on the States or whether we're in Canada, it makes no difference. The biggest thing I see with cleaning out lesions, like a white line lesion, is most people will not go far enough. All right. Yeah. So the old theory in, in hoof trimming is, well, guys see blood and they stop. Well, that cow doesn't have a fair chance to heal, right? We have to go until all the loose necrotic tissue is gone or she won't heal. She's going to be a repeat, 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 and you're going to get frustrated yeah. and try and get her on the truck. So we have to go far enough, but we have to be careful enough to minimize. We don't want to be ramming in there because if we do with a even a hand knife, we're going to damage keratin cells. So if that cow sticks around another parity or two, she's going to produce inferior hoof horn. So we want to be careful. But sometimes losing blood loss uh, it is, it's in, you know, we're going to do it anyway, right? We want to minimize the damage and we want to take our time. I was uh, on a hoof training meeting last week and somebody said, how many cows can you actually trim? And, you know, I'm an old guy. And I said, if they were all dry cows, nothing wrong with them. I could probably trim 80 to hundred in a day. Yeah. And he said, how many problem cows, like a white line, can you do for an hour? That's yeah. It. So it takes you 15 minutes to intervene with something. Yeah. Like that. I mean, you don't really want a cow in a shoot any longer than that, especially if they run a layover shoot, because you could pinch a nerve, especially in the front leg. So that's the thing people realize you can do when they're not lames, they can go through them pretty quick if they know what they're doing. But the lame cows, it's a lot of therapeutic work, hand work, really knife work. So it takes time. Yeah. What about like ulcers or abscesses too? I know we hear that term a lot. Okay. In the so countryside. With, with, with white lines, we usually will look at heat stress and look at flooring, right? Mm -hmm. Those are probably the biggest things. When I go into hoof records and I see a lot of soul ulcers, First thing that comes to mind is uh, we'll see a lot of soul ulcers in the fall when we're coming out of heat stress. So September, October, early November, we'll see a lot of blocks going on, right? Because that's they're coming out of heat stress. They drank more water. They ate less feed. The room pH got altered, right? We, we yeah. messed up fiber bugs in the room. But usually soul ulcers are an indication standing time, right? So they get hot. Did they bunch? Did we spray flies? You know, cows aren't the smartest. So in the summer, if we don't have properly ventilated barns. Where do cows go? They go to the poorest ventilated, darkest part of the barn because they associate darkness with getting away from the sun, right? Which is not correct, but that's what they do. So ventilation is very, very key. But soulsers should be just like Gordy Jones says, cow comfort. So if yeah. cow comfort's not dialed in, they're going to stand more and perch more in the two feet in, four feet in the stalls, or they're going to stand um, in the pens, right? Again, getting away from that goal of 12 hours a day per cow lying down and getting weight off the feet and blood flowing to the mammary gland. That's what we want. But in environmental stresses, that's where we're going to see more and more soul ulcers. And these, these just like the white lines, if we clean them out, we block them, 
month, you know, they should be much better. The extreme ones may take six weeks, depends on that. And then it depends on what they use for blocks. Is it wood, beech wood, oak, or are they using a hard plastic or rubber block? Some of those blocks will last longer. So that's all dependent on what the dairy wants to do. Yeah. And I think it goes, everything goes back to time budget, right? Like how long is that cow water feed a day? If we're aiming to get 12 hours of line time now, is that line time just lying there or is that sleeping and ruminating or that's just lying time? Correct. Yeah. And then, they're, above, right. then they're going to offer feed. Right. Yeah. So. I mean, we only have 24 hours in a day. So that cow's got to get milked two, three times, maybe four or five times, six times in a, in a AMS situation. She's got to drink water. She's got to eat feed. You know, there's a lot of factors going at play well, that, here, right? We aren't, we're talking lameness today, but water, <laughs> when you yeah. look at a time, time budget of 24 hours, this is a good thing for your producers to look at is to have enough linear inches out there and to get you through heat stress three, I'd strive for four to make sure you got enough, but they spend 30 minutes a day drinking that drives dry matter intake that drives milk. So yeah. we always want to make sure we've got enough. That's our cheapest resource. Do they have enough accessible uh, water space? So yeah, and, and clean water space. And clean. Are they cleaning them out, right, with a brush and bleach? Hopefully yeah. they are. It's just, uh, yeah, like when you kind of take a helicopter view of it and you look at there's 24 hours a day, like she's got a lot of other appointments that day, you know? <laughs> yes. Uh, and then what other kind of, big things would you look at with hoof health? I know I want to get into DD a little bit, right? Uh, like digital dermatitis later, but was there anything so, else? I'd like your white so line let, your abscesses. Let, let's kind of classify it for the folks. We usually textbook wise, um, the big three are soul ulcers. We just talked about white yep. line lesions. Those are called non-infectious lesions. Okay. Yep. And that's, so that's one side of the tree, so to speak. And I just want to clarify, do we, you know, the question always comes up, should I put tetracycline on them on a non-infectious lesion? Should I wrap them? Our answer is no, it's a scabbing effect. Now I'll clarify that. If a dairyman doesn't want blood all over the barn floor and the hoof trimmer got a little aggressive and they're bleeding, yeah, they better put a wrap on for a few hours and as a put some pressure on it, right? And then take it off. Yeah. But as a rule, non-infectious, we let them, we block them and we let the air scab them, right? Um, so those are two of the three. The other one's digital dermatitis. You could throw a foot rod in there. Um, another one's heel erosion. If you ever look, picked up a foot and you see in the heels, that black V, that's mm -hmm. heel erosion. So that's of the bacteria spirochete of the same family, a little different than what causes DD or digital dermatitis. So if you... You look at a, a foot that's got that black V on the heels, and Darian will say, well, what caused that? Probably should have foot bathed a little more. You'll slow that down. But eventually, if that cow sticks around long enough, she's going to lose half her claws, right? It'll just keep eking, eking, and there's no heels left, and she's down to the sole and the toe, and that's about all she has left because the, the bacteria have eaten basically all that tissue away over time. So those are the big three. Again, if we see a soul hemorrhage, that's the precursor to a soul ulcer. By definition, a soul hemorrhage has not broken through the hoof horn, right? We can see it. It hasn't come through. Yet. Looks like a bruise, right? Looks like a bruise, right? But it hasn't yeah. broke through. So we tell them when we train trimmers, watch it. 
you know, maybe bring her back a couple of weeks, look at it, see where it's at. But if it hasn't broke, we're not going to go in there and it may go away. It may not. We're not going to block her. We'll assess that and see if, if she's lame or not. But usually we don't block them. It's ulcers and white lines, automatic. Clean them out and block them. And then the digital dermatitis, that's in the other end. And that's under infection, just like foot rot, just like heel erosion. So those, those three, DD, foot rot, heel erosion, foot baths, topical sprain. You got heifers maybe in headlocks. You spray them. Anything that's an antimicrobial, that's what we're looking mm -hmm. at. Right. wraps and uh and spraying foot baths but we can with foot baths are are very you should get aggressive and i don't think in canada in, in the states there's too many herds that can get by with two days or less a week of foot bathing um if it's a closed herd that's a different issue but it's pretty prevalent disease once you get it on your farm it, it's pretty much there to stay there's hasn't been too many farms that i've been on that you know don't have the infectious some kind of infectious disease in the hooves they're few and far between well i mean i had a, a local veterinarian with me a year or so ago and he thought they had dd and he thought it was uh foot rot well there's nothing that's really going to make her stand on her toes because her heels are raw like hamburger right so mm -hmm. just like when a cow has sore toes where does she put her feet back feet underneath her Right. When her heels yeah. hurt, right. Where's she going to go? Feet are going to go behind her. Yeah. So that's the other thing. And then you see front legs where they look three legged or they, they prop one leg up in the air. So DD is very easy to identify in cows. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty easy. Um, I mean, you could see a soul fracture that would be rare, but it, it's possible, but usually. So with foot rot, you always see swelling, right? We were on a Canadian herd not too long ago that had foot rot. And I had a young person with me. I said, feel that. And there's heat and there's swelling up above in between the claws and up above the coronary band. Usually 90% of the time with DD, there is no swelling mm -hmm. once in a while, but rarely do you see swelling with DD, but they get very lame. Well, I've seen that with the foot wrap before. Like you can almost like, if you can't lay your finger between the hoof and the hip, like at the hairline and that cow gets like jumpy on you. Like there's usually some kind of foot rot issue kind of underlying there. There's there's a there's farmers all over that I can't you smell that DD lesion or or, or strawberry? Nope. I can smell foot rot though. Yeah. Yeah. I, I learned that as a kid, but uh that's rotting flesh. That stinks. And I can smell that. But uh the thing that for DD, um for the dairyman to know about is you know, the size makes a big difference. So the little ones, it's kind of like the iceberg effect. It's going to go not very deep in the dermis, right? Into the skin. So if we would aggressively foot bathe and we see these little tiny DD lesions, we're going to get those. But when they get to what we call the M4s, which are half dollar size, big ones, right? Like the size of a loony for a Canadian. There you go. They're loony. Yeah. <laughs> They're loony. That's, that's the right size. I got some of those. Yeah. So yeah. that would be, um, those are chronics. And so it goes deeper into the meat or the dermis than you see above. And they're big yeah. on the heels, right? Yeah. And so when I tell folks, okay, I had a guy in Canada not too long ago says, I don't want to, I want to spray them. Okay. You got headlocks. You want to spray. Most guys would want a foot bathe, right? And uh, whichever, they're antimicrobials in their work. 
So this guy's, I put him on a program and he'll spray him for three days. And then next month he'll do it for three days and it, it'll work. But if you quit for a month or two, it's got a cycle of about 45 to 60 days. It'll come roaring back. Cause once they get to the loony size, there's no stopping. You're going to burn the outside by the end of the week. They're going to walk like a new herd of cows. You ignore it. They're going to get lame or more lame than they were before. Does that make sense? Is there chronics now? Yeah, like the it, the lesions got deep into the yeah. into it's the hoof. Deep. I can't kill yeah. it when it's that far into the meat and into the skin, the tissue, the dermis. But when those little shallow ones, we can kill those through either yes. antibiotics, wrapping, or uh, or foot bathing. Yeah, with the DD, like the digital dermatitis, is that like a is it a bacterial infection then? Correct. Yeah. 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 So it can be. Like I know, I know in the past, or I don't know if people, I think they still do it is they'll put things like tetracycline on it and wrap it up and, and things like that on some of those really, really severe ones. Some are, you know, burn them. Some, it depends if they can get tetracycline. Some are using copper sulfate. I mean, they're both going to yeah. tissue. Um, so when you put on a wrap, if a dairyman puts on a wrap, uh, Gerard Kramer, who we work with, Canadian veterinarian. He's, a he, he, he's coming on the podcast soon. So oh, he's excellent. Yeah. Have on. Yeah. But he came out a few years ago with tetracycline, and you're only using a very few grams on a mm-hmm. lesion. And so tetracycline will work. Copper will work in a matter of just a few hours. So uh, I was on a large dairy not that long ago, and they put, used an excessive amount of tetracycline used a half a roll of vet wrap and then tied it down very tightly with duct tape. Mm-hmm. How would you like that to be the milkers that got to cut them off? So if a wrap, if they got any fingers left, if they got any fingers left, <laughs> that, that are broke. <laughs> but if a wrap is put on, what we work with trimmers is if it's put on a child should be able to pull them off the next day with one finger. You know, if they fall off in two to three hours after application in the barn, we don't care. Because all you're doing is uh, you're packing gauze and a chemical up there to burn the outside of that DD lesion or, or strawberry. Once that's done, the chemical's done. Now you've got a wet, stinky wrap. So yeah. you paid the hoof trimmer to treat it. And if that wrap stays on there many days, this is what DD or strawberry loves. Wet, anaerobic, or the lack of oxygen. You've just started a brand new crop of them, right? So the best thing you can do is if you put a wrap on this morning, it doesn't fall off by tomorrow morning, take it off. Yeah, and I've even had uh, some local hoof trimmer. uh, When he gets a new client, he gives them like a shepherd's hook almost so that the people in the parlor can kind of cut that off the next day. And, you know, everybody kind of raves about that a little bit. It's a really good idea on his part. Great marketing, but, uh, but, with that wrap, but it's good. A, it's a loose bandage. You could go through the digits one time and it'll stay mm-hmm. on. Nice herb. We can work with dairyman. One finger, pull them on. We're going to have a child pull them off. And they'll yeah. stay on for three hours, but if they fall off before we pull them off, we really don't care. Yeah. It did its job. Uh, I want to circle back a little bit with the DD. Like, is there an ideal placement or formula to say use in a foot bath like i guess we have to think about different applications too whether we're you know walking out of a parlor or if we're walking out of a or in a ams situation or even a tie stall situation like what would the in your mind mark what would be the 
best placement and maybe formula and sizing in the foot bath too, because I think that's a really important point. Let's start with the size, right? Yep. Number one, the size of the foot bath should be a minimum of 12 foot long. A lot of big cows in Ontario, right? So yep. we've studied this and the, and the gate of them, you got 80% of the strawberries going to be in the back feet due to lower hoof angle. They're going to be dirtier. It's a fact. You get a six foot plastic portable foot bath. They're going to get the front feet and a whiff in the back, right? So we, you almost got to get two portables and butt them together. So what we need is a, we need, if it's going to be single, we don't really care what the width is. It could be 30 to 36 inches wide, single critter. Uh, it should be 12 foot long and it should have a level. Um, so when I say that I've been into return lanes where the foot baths are in and I have a seven degree slope going up to the approach of the park where you think all the water is. That's so, right, yeah. <laughs> so you have to recess in the high end, right? You, so you have a level amount, but I'd like to see on some of these big cows, we say four, four to five inches minimum. I'd say four to five inches of depth across from, if it's a 12 foot span, that's what I'd like to see. Yeah. You know? So if you're going to effectively uh, place a foot bath, um, that's what I'd like to do. I mean, there's some disagreements, I guess, on, on robot dairies. A lot of those will place them at a 45 diagonal. It's the only way they could put a portable, really, like a six-footer. Um, we've had several Ontario dairymen that uh, got frustrated and they went to a crossover and we ripped out a head-to-head. We put in about a 16-foot foot bath. Now, the only downside is that is the dairyman has to push them through two, three times a week, and they got to go through it, right? Yeah. But once they're trained, I've got uh, probably four or five Ontario dairies in the last three years. Two of them I can think of were over 70% instance of strawberry, and they're in the single digits now. Foot bathing yeah. works. But it yeah. has to be set up. I mean, they put a plug in. They put in a height. All these guys put in a high power hydrant so they could fill it quickly, drain it quickly, all the liquids and solids, and they just power wash, get it cleaned up and refill and they're ready to go. So there's not a lot of downtime, but um, they did it right. And we helped them design those foot beds. I see in a lot of robot dairies now, they're putting them at the opposite end of the robot. So then they can just kind of push them. Like it's almost as wide as a crossover. So they can kind of yeah, I, push the cows around to the other side and they incorporate it. I see a lot of times with uh, with betting and things like that. So if they're, you know, betting freestalls or something like that, they can push all the cows to one side, they bed the back, then you push the cows through the foot bath, and then they can go in and bed the front. I was down so. a few years ago with one of the herdsmen's little robot dairy, the Boss Dairy in northern Indiana, and they did that. And he said he went about a year and kind of changed things up, and they, they put in a foot bath, did just exactly – and he said, and his thought was, is he didn't mind pushing cows through. And he says, once they were trained, they just walked through. I've got videos where we've done it over here and it's worked real well, but um, he just wasn't satisfied. And, and the change to him, he says, we're getting more milk. Cows are healthier. Uh, you can control DD. It's just, you know, whether you seek the right help from the right people. But DD is an easy one. I, I'll When farmers come to us and said, hey, I got foot rot, DD or heel erosion, can you fix it? Absolutely. Yep. Follow the Relatively but when quickly. They come and say, I got soul ulcers and white line lesions. That's like somebody just took a hammer to your thumb. That's going to take some time. Right. So 
that's got to grow from the inside out. Yeah. Is there any, like, should, I know producers hate using formaldehyde, but I see a benefit to it. Like, okay. what would an ideal foot bath, like, can you get away with doing just say like formaldehyde once or twice a week and then copper sulfate, or can you just go with it like a straight copper sulfate or all the um, time? So there's some different thoughts. All the data is still, there's a lot of commercial products out there today. Uh, Wisconsin's tested several. It's still from a cost and data standpoint, still comes back to copper sulfate and formaldehyde. Okay. Mm -hmm. I personally like formaldehyde. Uh, if you're going to talk green, it uh, it breaks down the carbon of water. So it's really good for the land. Might not be too good for employees or families if they're, it needs to be piped in, right? So if you're going to yeah. do formaldehyde, it needs to be piped in. Um, if you're going to run a formaldehyde foot bath, 2% is probably hot enough, especially if you're going to run it three days a week. Um, if you had a bunch of heifers and you were going to run it one day a week, you might get by with a 4 or 5%. I wouldn't go any hotter. Yeah. Uh, the reason, you know, I was in Iowa years ago and a guy was running a 10% formaldehyde solution, and that was through heifers. And he ran it too off, and then you end up burning the hair above the claw. They were more lame after he foot bathed them than before. Yeah. So that that's not a good thing. So a 2% formaldehyde solution or a 5% non-acidified copper sulfate is a very good antimicrobial. Or an acidified copper, a lot of copper sulfate, and buy it, it's already got the acidifier in it. Or you can basically buy regular copper sulfate and you could add an acid to it. Mm -hmm. Now, what do we mean by acid? What's the cheapest one out here? Um, I, I would probably think formic. Well, or... I'll use it for the people that may know like swimming pools and hot tubs, uh, pH minus, right? Yeah. That's just like a chlorine, isn't it? Yeah. A little kid yeah. has an accident in the pool or the hot tub. So that, that's pH minus. So that's going to drop it even further. That's sodium bisulfate. You can buy that from any commodity broker or feed mill, right? It's just a commodity. You sprinkle in a little bit. Now, if you're going to use copper sulfate, this is what I say. If they don't want to go and have us come out or go get a digital pH meter, right? Like you'd use in a pool or a hot tub and at least test it the first couple of times to make sure where the pH is. I've caught guys that are bucketing acid into copper sulfate. And when I did go test it, it was down there about a one. Well, what do you think that's going to do to the skin? That's, that's going to be that, a little burny. Yeah. So we say if you're going to acidify copper, you need to start at about a 3.0 to 3.5. By the time it's up there around 5.5, it's goo. It needs to be changed. And the bacteria is overtaking the chemical, right? So every time the cow poops in the foot bath, you're deactivating the chemical little by little, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so it all is on it based on the dunging pattern and it, to see how many cows you can get through and how big the foot bath is. So again, formaldehyde, a 2%, a 5%, or a, basically you figure about a 25 to 3% acidified copper. The only other commercial product I would put out there is a product that's had some pretty good research on it. Um, it's called Hoof Zinc, Z-I-N-K. It's a commercial product, but it's liquid zinc chloride. Um, if they're going to use it for a few days and they've got a cold barn and they're afraid of uh, it freezing, this stuff's good to 50 below Celsius. So uh, it, it, it will hold yeah. up and it's done a pretty good job. It's more pricey than copper or formaldehyde, but we've seen some pretty good data. And there's an awful lot of commercial products out here. 
they tend to cost more and they just don't have the depth of data to support it uh, from the industry. What about zinc sulfate? I know some people have used that as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's not as strong as antimicrobial and it mixes poorly. I guess I'd use hot water to mix it, uh, try and, uh, you know, that's probably always a good idea, but it, it does not mix well. So that's an issue. Um, so you don't get uniformity with it. But to back up with the copper, why we would ever use acidified in copper is copper tends to uh, drop the pH. The acid will drop it even further, right? Mm -hmm. And the theory is, well, what it is, not theory, it's fact. When you put the acid in with a copper sulfate, you're putting more copper into solution. So therefore, I no longer need a 5% non-acidified. I can get by with about a 25 to 3% because it's I'm getting more of that copper in a usable soluble form that makes that, sense that that ph just is or dropping it, it even further. yeah it i was just yeah. trying to think of the word but that ph will take like if you think about it that that ph goes lower and then that copper is more dissolvable like the sulfate right. form of that copper okay. needs so a you lower can save ph some money. I, I just say if a guy's going to do it they should get it calibrated and get a ph and try it the first couple times until they got a system locked in so you know you never would do an acidified copper below a 3.0. It's got to yeah, be you, lower than that. And you mentioned that pH strips won't necessarily work for that. That's not like going to You need a better, like you, you need to you go need on like Amazon a, or whatever. It's got a digital screen on it, and then it just kind of goes into the solution. In it. And then you'll just have to calibrate it with distilled water, I would assume. Yep. And, yep. If it, you know, that, that would, yeah, these kits are all self-explanatory, you know, how to balance me doing about 10 minutes. So that's just a pool kit, yeah, like that kind of thing. Like you own a pool store. Yeah. Go to Amazon. I should start getting commission from Amazon for all the stuff that we tell, say to go on there and buy refractometers and anonometers. Yeah. The one thing I was thinking about too, with formaldehyde, like it comes out of suspension when it gets too cold too. Right. Like, so this time of year, it's a little um, bit less effective. Less than eight degrees Celsius, you're going to have about 50% effectiveness. Okay. Of that, it's going to be a lot more. So when you get below eight Celsius, it's going to gum up. It's going to gel up. It, it'll work, but it's not near as effective as in warmer temperatures. And that's the temperature on the solution. Correct. So yeah, okay. if the barn's warm, some of these barns in Ontario are warm, much warmer than we have here. Um and they're they're getting enough traffic, and those baths are not sitting overnight cooling off. Probably going to be fine. But if they're mm -hmm. sitting there several milkings, yeah, uh, that probably isn't the best thing. They might look at something else. Yeah, and like I know we talk about all this stuff with uh, hoof health and things like that, but at the end of the day, it helps with production and and growth and and everything else. Like, is there a certain number like you can kind of correlate between? You know, if you're seeing this uh, incidence rate on DD or if you're seeing this incident rate on abscesses or white lines or just general lameness, like what's the production repercussions of that? Well, we can extrapolate it back to uh, locomotion scoring, right? So, yeah, I guess that'd be yeah. the easiest way rather so, than look I at mean, a specific. A one, there's no milk loss. There's about 2% on a two. I think five on a three, 10 on a four, and 15 on a five, right? Five is three-legged lame. So that's quite a bit of milk loss. So it really starts to add up when you start to look at the percentage of the herd. Like I know I've done a lot of it in the past with lameness scoring and things like that and going in and 
looking at these cows and say, oh, you've got so many at two, so many at three, so many at four, so many at five. You know, you can really kind of put some so real tangible numbers to it. Guidelines. Let me back up. The one thing we run DD that I wanted to finish with was if a gentleman says he's got, you know, breeding stock, right? They're in pre-breed going to the breeding pens and they got headlocks. And he says, I can't foot bathe my heifers. What do I do? But they're coming in cabin and they got strawberry. Well, get a hold of us. We'll come out with your local feed mill. We can put you on a protocol and we can spray them. You want to get a sling and a, and a tank, we can mix it up with water or distilled water, depending on what your water sample would be. You know, if you get some total dissolved solids and other type of issues in there, the chemical works less effective, right? So sometimes we have to use like distilled water, but not usually. But we put them on a three to four day consecutive uh, spraying protocol. You just spray the back feet, not the front. Forget them because, again, 80% of the back feet. You get in close and you put about five to six cc's in between the digits at close range. Three, four days in a row, quit. You repeat the same protocol next month, once a month. Mm-hmm. And that will work well to try and keep a ceiling on it, so to speak, within the uh, within the herd. Here's some guidelines on lameness on the big three we're talking about. Where should dairymen and Canada try to be? White line lesions, the goal universally, internationally, is less than 10%. It's the same for soul ulcers. And it's also the same for digital dermatitis or strawberry. So if they get into dairy comp and start pulling up their hoof records and they're going 15, 20% and greater in some of these areas, they really should probably be getting a hold of some folks like ourselves to try and come in and identify what the causes are. Kind of circle back there. It's like there's major, like you were mentioning before, if you're talking about like three, and I mean, there's a lot of cows that would say have a lameness score of three if you're looking at the if you're looking at it and what did you say that was like four or 5% reduction in production or three, about five. Yeah. And then 10, 15, yeah. five. Yeah. So, I mean, when you start looking at some of these herds, even on a hundred cows at a 3% reduction, I mean, it's a lot of money. You start, you start talking a lot about a lot of money, but on the other side too, how much of that production loss is uh, not tangible where it being, you know, poor reproductive performance, poor fresh cow performance, poor, you know, go down the list, like that kind of thing adds up. Like I know there's a dollar value you can put on uh, how many days open a cow or herd is like. For every day that cow's open, Canadian dollars, it's four bucks a cow a day. Yeah. Right. Like that's a, that adds up in a big hurry. You know, that's 28 bucks a week. Used to be able to get a case of beer for that. You can't anymore, but um, I mean, that was an easy way to kind of relate that. That number back to producers. So I was on a Canadian meeting last week and, and the question came up and lameness is multifactorial. We look at why cows leave a herd and about 16% of that, you know, is lameness related, Keith, but that impacts reproduction, that impacts utter health, immune function. And so it's multifactorial. It affects a lot of yeah. other things. When they got bad feet, bad hooves, um, it, it really... I guess the question is, have you ever seen a fat, lame cow? No, they're usually they're always bone skinny, thin, right? Like when they're real, real lame, they're bone thin. I was usually on a, the re- repercussions of a lame cow, though, because you do start to see that disparity in body condition in the herd, right? Like you'll have real thin, fresh cows, and then maybe they do get fixed, and then you drive these elephants off, and they're going into the dry pen, right? So, right. I had a gentleman ask me last week, and 
you know, I, I think uh, cow condition, body condition scoring is, is huge for this. But the question came up is um, on lame cows. You know, we, we build barns with curbs that are, you know, eight sand barns, recycling ourselves, about eight, eight, nine inches, right? And uh, proper bedding. Uh, but again, why do lame cows stand more? Because she knows if I go in there and lay down, I may not what? Get back up. Yeah. Well, that's why it once they're lame, they just get worse. They stand, mm -hmm. they perch, they get pushed aside, they lose body condition. So, yeah, it, it really affects not only milk production, which is the quick one we see, but body conduction, energy shunting, uh, and just overall immune uh, thriftiness. Is there a proper time, like, if you're thinking about trim timing, I, I'm going to get a little off topic here, but like, sure. what are the kind of the points of a lactation you're going to look at having a cow through a trim shoot in sound, in sound cows, not sound compromised cows. cows. So number one is I would like to see every dairyman in Ontario, every cow, dry cows as they're going dry. That's an automatic with a train trimmer, right? Good job. Yep. Every yep. dry cow, we don't miss dry cows. That's number one. I think number two is we get to the lames. We do a better job of identifying the lames. And uh, then the other one would be mid trims as we have trimmer time and, and time to get to them. And again, if we've got mattress barns, if we have uh, compost or we have recycled more cells, we're going to get more claw growth than cows that are on sand barns, right? So mm -hmm. there could be some more need for mid trims in those type of environmental situations. Um, yeah, and I know I, I, I would see, put dry trims and lames prop definitely one and two, but dry is at one. Well, it's it's crazy how fast the foot will start to reform if a cow does go lame with the ulcer, and even with strawberry too. Like I've seen it, they get strawberry bad enough that it really just starts to affect their their walking behavior. So then they start to compensate and things like that too, right? So well, we got some research on when you say locomotion scoring, one being perfect and five being animal welfare right yeah three right if we do nothing in 30 days that three is not going back to a two she's on her way to a four so yeah. intervention quick intervention is the best and we didn't set that up for today but locomotion scoring for your listeners is really it was developed by michigan state dr sprecher years ago uh, hoffman laroche had it and zimpros had it for over 20 years but it's a visual program and we teach it, but it's looking at cows as they walk and as they stand. Right. Mm -hmm. And so a non-lean cow, when she walks, where should that back foot track? Right. With her front foot. Right on it. Right. Yeah. And so if that were the case, that's a non-lean. If I put a two by four across the top of her back, I see no daylight. Or if I lined her up as she walks in the return lane against a rail, I see nothing. It's flat. That's yeah. what I want. That's a perfect cow. A two, she'll stand and she'll look like a one. But as she starts to walk, that back foot misses the front foot by about a foot, right? And as mm -hmm. she walks, you see this very gradual arch, right? Yeah. Threes, they may miss that front foot by two foot. A four, maybe three foot. Fives, <laughs> Yeah, it could be well, feet more. I mean, it's it's really bad. So the long, the wider the the gap or gate from the front to the back foot as she walks and tracks, the bigger the arch, right? Mm -hmm. And so the fours and fives are pretty easy to find. It's the twos and threes. We'll just 
but we should try if they're on dry flat surfaces they should track with that back foot very close to the front foot if they're not lame and that's what i talk to producers about when we are doing lameness scoring is that you want to catch those twos before they're threes and those threes before they're fours the fours and the fives are already diagnosed we know that there's an issue there it's we the ones that four there's not much to a five we can do with those um, yeah, they're usually your three-legged or even two-legged animals sometimes, yeah. 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 And I know with, like, animal welfare regulations, that's going to be tougher and tougher and tougher, right? Much. In, in North you know. America altogether, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it doesn't matter what side of the border you're on. It's, it it's does just not, kidding. Not anymore. So uh, those, are, those are problematic cows, and so we have to either get rid of them earlier or provide therapeutic uh, treatment to them. But yeah, and the other thing on locomotion scoring for your producers, when they become lame and you got the trimmer coming in and you say cow four, uh, 430 is lame and he comes in, well, which claw, you know? Mm-hmm. If you look at the head bob, if she's lame and it's a back leg lameness, where's the head go? Down. Every time. Down? Yeah, Goes I was going to think. I didn't think time. about that. I should think before yeah. he talks sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and then think, yeah, and then think about it. If she's front leg lame, where's the head going? It, the it's head going up, goes isn't up. it? Yeah. yeah, it looks like yeah. she's throwing her head into a tree. There, mm-hmm. it's a pretty ugly event to see a front leg lameness, and they're hard to heal up. But so if you see cows with the heads going up or the heads always going down, hoof trimmers coming in and say, "Hey, cow four thirty. It's bad. I don't know which back leg or which front leg it is, but you eliminated two of them. So that makes that saves a lot of time and makes things efficient just by observation. Yeah. And I mean, that's one of the skills that I've kind of focused on over the last years is that just making sure that guy the producers cows are sound and and it's better to get that smoldering fire than it is to have the full fledged inferno going on in the barn, right? Like Right. At least if it's you catch it at the early stages, you can kind of get on it. If it's too late already, then it's a lot of hoof trimming and attrition. Like you just got to cycle through cows. Those cows got to leave and you got to prevent the lameness and the new cows coming in to kind of to fix it. And a lot of times it's not easy. It takes a long time for that cycle to kind of play itself out in, in a herd, right? So make sure our heifers are coming in without strawberries and... You know, the other thing is, is can we, can we foot bathe our far offs? You know, how are they mixed or the pre freshing mm-hmm. with them? But that's a long time. You get 50 days there, at least with the far offs. If we run them through once a week, that's an antimicrobial. The worst thing is to have a fresh cow and she's three-legged lame. You're going to have the vet out. And yeah. And I, yeah. It's a bad thing. It's, I always uh, relate that to like, whether it be hockey or a marathon runner, like, it's like hitting their foot with a ball peen hammer, then tell them to go out and play a game or run a marathon or do whatever, right? Happen. Like you're, they're already behind the, they're already behind the eight pole to start, right? So, right. Uh, you had an interesting point I want to get back onto with DD and heifers. Um, right. And the other thing too is corkscrew hooves, because I think we're seeing, well, I don't think, I know that we're seeing a lot more of that, um, a lot more prevalence of that in, like the Canadian market and I'm sure they're seeing, I know we were talking there last week and you were saying that they're seeing a lot more of that North America. Yeah. yeah. Can you maybe uh, talk about that and what causes it? And what we want to do the DD one first. Well, no, let's talk about the corkscrew hooves and then we'll go to DD. Yeah. So by definition, corkscrew claw 
when I started 20 plus years ago, referred to an older cow. And it yeah. was on the back feet of the outside lateral claw, one of the back feet, right? That's a corkscrew, old cow. What we're referring to today is totally different. It's called reverse medial claw rotations, right? And it occurs usually in the front inside medial claw, right? So 60% of the weight because the head is on the front legs. Um, they're more forgiving how they're connected than the back legs. And then most of the weight in the back legs are typically uh, on the outside lateral claw. In these reverse medial claw rotations, the weight still is on the front inside claw, but in the back feet, it flips. Throw the book out. Now it's on the inside claw. The outside claw may not even be touching concrete and it may not even be weight bearing. So the biomechanics, and when you start seeing some of these cows with these reverse medial claw rotations in the back feet, you'll see them get really stiff and arthritic. They walk kind of like a uh, army soldier from years ago. If you've seen that boost up and kind of, it's pretty ugly in the front feet, you'll see them cross and you'll see that the inside medial claw actually grows, uh, twice as fast. I hate to use the word laminitic claw, but that's kind of the theory we could use. It's, it's growing at a faster rate. People have said it's confirmation. I, I, I don't think that's totally it. Um, people have said it's nutrition. Well, we're not smart enough to screw up the same four claws on a cow. I, I don't think anybody in the feed industry worldwide is that smart. Um, in genetics, I, no, it, it's, a, it's an environmental thing, right? Um, we've got some large dairies in Michigan that used to raise their heifers here. The feet were all screwed up by the time they calved. Well, now they're sending them out and putting them on dirt in Kansas. They come back looking straight, no strawberry, no lesions. By the middle of the second lactation, all they did was delay it. They're all screwed up again, but they're overcrowding, they're reaching. What causes it? We think in heifers, it's caused primarily from not pushing feet up and heifer feet enough. We have some heifers and feeders, uh, razors in North America that are limit feeding heifers. Okay, so that they're reaching for feed. Um, it goes back to looking at throat height, which is where a heifer would stand. And then you measure it like in headlocks where her throat would. So you look at inches. We got a lot of heifers that are raising converted cow barns, right? So a throat height on a breeding age heifer would be maybe 16 inches and a mature cow would be 26 to 28. Well, they're going like this to get feed. They're putting all the weight on their front inside claws and the brain sends a signal, hey, irritation, send blood, produce more callus. Well, then this bone, this joint in the P3 gets arthritic and we, we end up getting, you know, comfort. We end up getting problems within it. And, and once it's there, the only thing we can do with trimmers is, is we can... Uh, we can model them out. We can shorten the claws. We still do not trim between the claws, even though they're crooked. So if they're long, we'll trim them uh, perpendicular. You'll see some of the feet I've trimmed. It'll almost look like you could fit. Carl Berge would say, uh, as Gerard Kramer works closely with Carl, but you could put a hard boiled egg in those claws. But we're just trying to model it up. But by 150, 200 days, if I pull that same claw back on that cow and put her in a chute, you'll never know I trimmed it. It grew that fast. So it's temporary relief. It's kind of like a Band-Aid effect. 
when the problem was created, the only way we're going to eradicate it is through better housing, right? And, uh, but I mean, I, I've been in some places where the curbs, you know, even in young animals, we had one here in Michigan not that long ago and they had slant bars and we tore them out. This was up to pre-breed. We went with a single rail. They kind of thought we were crazy. We cut it way down. And then we did some adjustments with the pre-breed and the breeding age heifers and then some adjustments with the uh, headlocks. So again, um, things like putting rubber down in sand barns, right? Uh, at the feeding area, because they're gonna, that's very aggressive. The other thing that can help uh, avoid paper, some guys may be using paper as bedding, that gets clogged up in the toes, that's not advisable. The other thing I tell heifer raisers, delay sand as long as possible. I mean, if I was in Canada today, I'd be raising them on recycled manure solids or compost or something like that. You're gonna have some extra claw, but uh, we're going to have some thin claws and we're going to have these uh, problematic re uh, reverse medial claw rotations. Usually you'll see them, Keith, in the front feet. And then about 60 to 90 days later, you don't see it in all herds. You'll find it come up in the back feet too. So they kind of follow. But usually it's in the front and it comes from reaching. That's one of them. And then there's just being missed uh, for the size of the heifer. Um, the feeding dimensions are just not correct. But these, we, we've done various facilities within Zimpro internationally, and we've had a lot of success at minimizing this. But it's a facilities fix, in our opinion. Oh, one thing that I uh, noticed, too, is that you don't see producers put a lot of heifers through trim shoots. No, no, unless they're lame. Yeah, like uh, that seems to be when they get there. I know I have some producers that when they go up into far off, for instance, like Springers, they get to see the uh the pedicurist at that time but uh in sand barns if the, they were you know i would delay sand and heifers at least to a year of age that might be hard for some of yeah. the folks but i would i would delay it i'd go sawdust i'd go recycle north solids compost something else we're just gonna have more problems but if they are on one of those other substances manure solids or compost we should maybe start thinking some of these good dairy producers in ontario about Maybe running 50 head of springers through. Is there something there? Because I got a feeling there's going to be some extra claw growth, right? So yeah. on those type of herds, I think considering non-sand herds, um, maybe we should do an acid test and, and run some springers through with your hoof trimmer. Let's see what they look. Let's look at. Remember, we were talking last week, and, and we want 50 to 52 degree angle on the claws. Angles is everything, right? And so... Mm -hmm. We want to make sure they're the right length, but we want to get them up on their toes. The hardest part of the hoof is the toe triangle, then the sole, then the heel. And what we advocate with guys is when they trim, you're trimming usually right here, sole to the toe, right? And we try yeah. to stay off the heels as much as possible unless we need to be. And uh, we don't want cattle like this, like water skiing. Skiing, right? yeah. yeah. Yeah, you don't want that. They're not going to hang around and get sickle looking lower legs and just because the suspension apparatus above the claw has broken down, ligaments are shot, right? Yeah. Out. But again, proper trimming. But yeah, I would think for your listeners that uh, consider springers for the herds that are going to have some extra claw growth. Not a bad idea to at least run a few through and see what you can see. Yeah. And one thing I've done with a couple uh, sand herds in the past is put that uh, like close up dry cow pack or whatever in the sand stalls, just fill it up with recycled manure bedding or whatever 
and it seems just to uh, packs in real nice. It drains water if you keep a good angle to it, and it the heifers just stay so clean on it too. It's surprising actually, and yeah, I'm not sure. It's probably too early to tell. I think we only did it like six, seven months ago at the one herd that I'm thinking about, but uh, I should go back there and go through it and see what the hoof health is looking like on their springers and at, and their fresh two-year-olds just to see if it did make a difference or not because that was their complaint like we're just we're seeing too much corkscrewing and too many uh hoof health issues in that in that age group so one thing i want to go back on these reverse medial claw rotations if you get some contact from producers that are having issues these are relatively new in north america in the last less than 10 years that they've really become prevalent and they're getting more so every year we are willing to come out and work with trimmers if they want to work with us but we do advocate to preserve the strength of the hoof, right? And they're a problematic uh, claw. So not all trimmers have been trained, especially if they've been at it for years. Um, so if they're willing, if the trimmers are willing to uh, learn on these problematic claws, uh, we would be willing to come out and work with them on certain areas. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Just the training aspect. Um, the next thing I kind of want to talk about, or I want to stay in this heifer train here is uh, DD prevention. So I know we talked about who hoof health, um, with foot baths and things like that, but there's also trace mineral stuff that we can do uh, on the heifers. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that and and maybe give us some efficacy numbers on it? Yeah, that was called the DD formula, right? And it's yeah. it contain eighty percent of it is Zimpro's Avela Plus. Okay, so it has a high level of organic zinc, complex zinc, copper, manganese. Uh, so that's for controlling DD. There's cobalt in there, which cobalt's not like the other metals. Those are bound to amino acids to get them to the small intestine. Cobalt's going to work in the rumen. It's going to basically help in fiber digestion. Um, uh, and then there's also another source, um, potassium iodide. There's a source of iodine. So Yeah, and that's that's the big thing with it. Like yeah, that is. The other, when we make the DD formula, this would be the sole trace mineral pack. So basically a feed company says, I, I want a heifer and we're using this in some dry cows. Actually, it works well for dry cows. It, it has to come out the day of calving because of the level of iodine, right? If they pull yeah. the calving, put yeah. them on the lactation diet. There's no problem with that, but it does in research with Wisconsin in three trials, the average was about 60% reduction in controlled research. And that was highly significant. So no, nothing's perfect. But 60% reduction in problematic herds. Uh, we did that in heifers and then did that in two large heifer operations. And we've done it in two large feedlot studies, Holsteins plus Canadian heifers up in Northwest Iowa. And we had very, very good responses uh, on the beef as well as in the heifer area. So, uh, but we're adding two source iodine, it, the potassium iodine's in the Avail Plus. And then the formula that we would give a, a nutritionist or feed company, um, it calls for a second source, which we recommend is EDDI, right? Organic iodine. And then there's some mineral oil or filler. Uh, and then the rest is just uh, zinc sulfate, copper sulfate, manganese sulfate. And this supplies 100% of the trace minerals. Well, there's selenium in there too. Whichever selenium the manufacturer has, we'll, we'll provide that so we get the right legal level of selenium. Then that's taking care of all the major uh, micronutrients as well as selenium and iodine. So that would fit based on a body weight. Um, that's how we would feed that package. But it's worked very well. The key to using it um, is it needs to be 
So let's say heifers are showing up with DD lesions and we see it in the breeding pen. Well, we have to back that supplementation of this product up a minimum of 60 days before we see the first observation. So 60 days back or at least 60 to 90 days before they go in the breeding pen is when they would have to start feeding this because this doesn't work overnight. You're, you're No, it takes some lead time on it, right? Well, it's just like with the foot rot years ago by feeding higher levels of zinc. What, what is this stuff doing? It's working on the pliability of the tissue, right? And it's yeah. allowing the tissue to make more of a barrier, not let pathogens in. So that that's how the product is working in the, in the skin integrity, primarily. I know uh, I've got limited experience with it, but it seems to work in certain situations. I mean, I guess it's the number one thing you look at if it's if a producer just can't get foot baths done whether it be a bar design issue or, or something like that, like it's, it's a good place to start, right? It's a good place to start. Um, I think in conjunction with a foot bath or spraying, spraying topical antibiotic would be even better, but we've got some um, herds that are doing that in Ontario, just as a soul, you know, through nutrition. Mm-hmm. We do not have, we have feedlot on, on steers and feedlot heifers and, and, and the dairy heifers. We do not have it in uh, dry cows. But we do have a lot of large herds over here in Michigan and throughout the states that are using it in dry cows in connection with foot baths to basically make sure they have all feet, all eight claws in good integrity when they calve. And so yeah. they do, all of them, that's coming out the day of calving. Because yeah. we don't want a hot tank of milk. Well, I know, and I know what, like it, here in Canada, they're testing a lot more for iodine now and than what they used to even, you know, five years ago. So... But it works. I mean, if you can get 60% reduction in the in the uh, development of a strawberry lesion, it's worth considering. Yep. 60% of the time, it works every time. <laughs> was, was there any other uh, final thoughts, Mark, that you had when it comes to a lot of these hoof uh, diseases, whether it be prevention or or maintenance or, you know, fixing the issue that you could think of? Well, like I said, keep it simple. Let's have a target for every dairy in Ontario. We have don't have any more than 10% DD. And I've been on them I'm in the States too, but it's costly. You're losing milk. Okay. So if we go 15, 20%, you're losing several liters of milk, right? Mm-hmm. In reproductive efficiency. So that, that animal's under stress, right? Uh, so we can control that. That's an easy one. And I, I would think my easy thing is if you're foot bathing your herd one day a week, maybe two is going to be a little bit better. I think it would be. And so it's not that expensive a thing, but I would really like dairy producers. Let's make sure the dry cows and the heifers, not only lactating cows, but the dry cows and the heifers, we're keeping the foot rot. And we're, we're trying to get a, a sprain or a foot bath program in our dry cows, at least the far offs and, and our heifers. So they come in and uh, calving with good feet before they go into the lactation herd. I guess that would be the, the key thing. Uh, this is a, a, a non-infectious lesions. Should never see a cow more lame after she came out of the chute than when she went in. That should yep. never happen. I see it happen. And just for the dairymen that are listening, that's not correct, right? And I'm not trying to get any hoof trimmer, but we want to be, uh, we want to do our jobs out here and do right. But if we over trimming, everywhere states europe canada that's the biggest thing we run into is people that get too aggressive with a grinder and take too much we can always take more but yeah taking too much 
and, and the bottom of the sole compresses, that's not a good thing for the dairyman or the cow. So um, cows should never be more lame after trimming, shouldn't be. Especially if she came in and she was really lame, if we did a good job and cleaned her out, we put a good block on her and we put it on straight with the shin bone and lined it up and she's walking on the block and the affected claws off the concrete, she should walk a lot better. I think you saw a couple of those last week. So, yeah. um, so that, you know, that's our goal, uh, to just provide treatment and, uh, uh, work with these herds and, and dairy producers the best we can. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I surely appreciate your time coming on the podcast. I know we've mentioned it a few times here that you were up, uh, in this neck of the woods, uh, in Western Ontario last week, uh, putting on a producer meeting and with, in conjunction with Wallenstein here. And I, uh, I learned a lot and it was great to be back out with a crowd in a barn and, and do some real practical things that, uh, that the dairy producers that, uh, listen to the podcast can kind of, uh, take some information from and, and make their herds better. So I, I truly appreciate, appreciate it, Mark. Well, thank you, Keith. Appreciate the opportunity of being on today. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for listening. This episode of the Dairy Farmer's Digest is brought to you by the dairy team at Wallenstein Feed and Supply Limited. If you enjoy the show, subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast player. And please leave us a review. If you would like further information about today's topic, check out the show notes for further details and our contact information. I would also like to extend a special thanks to Christine Spoonerwood, our producer, and our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera.